Exodus chapter 20. And tonight we continue with our look at the seventh commandment. We find it in verse 14. God speaking from the mountain audibly, mountain quaking, the people trembling. And God says in verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Uh, Already we've seen that this command is given in order to teach us to esteem and to honor marriage. Um, Sexual sins are sins because they are perversions of something very, very good. The gift of union and communion in marriage. Uh, Marriage is to be treasured by us and esteemed as a wonderful, uh, venerable institution. Even if we ourselves never get married, uh, whatever experiences we have in our own marriages, marriage itself is to be known by us, treasured by us as good, intrinsically good and honorable. We then considered some violations of the seventh commandment. Uh, They would include adultery proper, uh, fornication, which includes all kinds of sexual sins. Uh, We talked about cohabitation this morning, and we talked about lust. And by the way, let me point out that even once you are married, it is still certainly possible to commit serious sexual sin, even within the context of marital intimacy. Uh, You do so if you do not treat your spouse in the bedroom with love and kindness and sacrifice. And as I hope was clear this morning, learning self-control is just as important for life in marriage as it is for life before marriage or outside of marriage. I also need to point out that fornication includes the very worst of sexual sins, which we did not mention this morning. Sins like rape or sexual child abuse, uh, those are certainly all forbidden by the seventh commandment. Well, then finally this morning we saw that Jesus fulfilled the seventh commandment. He is the faithful bridegroom, always faithful to his bride. So tonight we come to our final two questions for this verse. Uh, First, how does the Holy Spirit help us keep this commandment? Uh, Knowing that we have been saved by faith in Jesus, knowing that all of our sins, including violations of the seventh commandment, are all forgiven, knowing that heaven is in our future, longing to live a life of, of gratitude and worship to the God who saved us, how does the Holy Spirit now help us live A pure life. Number one, the Spirit shows us that God's motive in commanding absolute purity is love. God's motive in commanding absolute purity is love. That is, the reason God commands us to pursue absolute purity is because He loves us and knows better than we do what is best for us. God is not against your joy. He is for your joy. 
We too often live in the here and now, but God sees the big picture. And God can see that sexual purity is best for both your temporal happiness in this world and ultimately your eternal happiness. There is a kind of joy that runs much deeper and is so much more precious than any pleasure found in sexual intimacy. God's commands are given to you as a lamp for your feet and as a light for your path. This path will bring you into much greater blessing and greater joy than if you wander off into the prohibited forest and the the supposed uh, paths into deserts. We're to walk the straight and narrow because that is the path of blessing and joy. How many Christian couples can testify of how their own sexual intimacy within marriage has been damaged and hurt because of sexual immorality on the part of one of them or both of them before they were married? Friends, God knows what He's doing in this command. He knows what He's doing in this command to be pure. He's not being a killjoy. He's setting you up for greater joy, perhaps even greater sexual joy, than you would have had otherwise. So trust Him. Know that God loves you and receive this command as coming from a Father who loves you. Number two. The Spirit shows us that God's gift to us for this battle is Christ. Christ is our greatest gift for this struggle. Uh, He is our greatest gift because through Christ we can throw off the guilt of our past sexual sins. Through Jesus Christ and real faith in Him, our sins of sexual immorality are truly taken away, put away forever. Sometimes the earthly consequences of those sins will continue. But the spiritual consequences, and particularly the righteous wrath of God, have been removed from us by Christ. At great cost... On the cross, Jesus bore the punishment that our sins deserve, including our sexual sins. And therefore, as we seek now to live a life of obedience, as we seek to follow Jesus and to live for Him, we must not become crippled or paralyzed by guilt over sexual sins. There's something about sins of this nature, about seventh commandment sins, that have a tendency to to grip people and to paralyze them and to cause them to feel um, uh, crippled by guilt in a way that some other sins do not. We must embrace the forgiveness that we have in Christ. We must embrace our gospel identity. If God has forgiven us, then we are forgiven. And to act as if you're not is to live in unbelief against what God has clearly said. There is wonderful freedom here. We're to feel this freedom. We're to know this freedom. We are to live in the forgiveness God has given to us. Moreover, Christ is a precious gift in our ongoing fight against sexual sin. In his office as prophet, Jesus speaks to us by his word on this matter. In his role as priest, Jesus intercedes for us before God on this matter. In his office as king, Jesus will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear if we will only look to him. 
Jesus protects us, he helps us, he leads us, he guides us. You are not alone in this battle. Your good shepherd is with you. Number three, the Spirit shows us biblical strategies for fighting against sexual sin. The Spirit helps us by showing us biblical strategies for fighting against sexual sin. Uh, Throughout the Bible, uh, both in those who successfully defeated this temptation and in those who failed to defeat this temptation, we learn valuable lessons that are helpful to us. So let me mention six of them, okay? Six lessons we learn, six strategies that the Spirit teaches us in the Bible for this battle. Number one, don't be in the wrong place. Don't be in the wrong place. Isn't this the lesson that we learn from David? That passage in which he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Or really worse, it was akin to rape because he's the king demanding that she be with him. And ultimately, he kills her husband. In that passage, we, it opens up with these words. Listen to these words. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. So this was the time of year when kings go out to war, we're told. And yet the king of Israel, where is he? He's back in Jerusalem. David was supposed to be with the fighting men. Instead, he's back home with their wives. Being where you shouldn't be is a quick way to find yourself doing what you shouldn't do. Careful little eyes where you look. Careful little ears where you, what you hear. But a lot of times it begins with careful little feet where you roam. Don't be where you shouldn't be. Strategy number two. Run away. Run away. I made the point this morning that this is the counsel given by Scripture for all sexual temptation. Uh, Joseph models it for us in Genesis. When Potiphar's wife reaches for him and he zooms out of that house as quickly as he can, even leaving his outer cloak in her hands. This is the command in 1 Corinthians 6 where Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Our response to sexual temptation should be to flee. Turn that off. Go somewhere else. Get out of that situation. Number three. Respond to habitual sin with radical action. Respond to habitual sin with radical action. Remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. I know you know them, but let them fall on you again. He said, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. The point Jesus is making there is this. If you keep giving in to sin, 
If you keep allowing sin to have its way with you, eventually your heart will harden and your, your faith will shrivel up and die. It will prove not to be lasting faith, not to have been God-given faith, not to have been saving faith, and you will not go to heaven. Therefore, at whatever the cost, take radical action against habitual sin. Do whatever is necessary. Do you remember the scene from the movie Fireproof? In which Kirk Cameron uh, has been over and over again looking at things on the computer that he knows is wrong for him to be looking at. And so what does he do? He, he takes the computer out into his yard and with a baseball bat, he just, he just pummels it to pieces. Even with the neighbors looking on, wondering, you know, what's, what's wrong with him? But he just destroys the computer. What are the sinful habits that you have fallen into? They may be seventh commandment sins. They may be other commandment sins. But what is it that you keep vowing not to do and then find yourself doing over and over again? What radical action do you need to take to help you be done with that sin once and for all? Number four. Number four, find and delight in a Christian spouse. Find and delight in a Christian spouse. This was the counsel of wise Solomon to his son related to this temptation. Uh, I'll read from Proverbs 5. Solomon says to his son, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. Listen to this. Rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer. A graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman? Or embrace the bosom of an adulteress. You see the idea. Uh, Sexual desires were made for marriage. And they are to be embraced and enjoyed in marriage. Do away with sexual temptation by enjoying something better. Rejoicing in your spouse. Being intoxicated in the love of your spouse. Um. Husbands and wives in the room, are you intoxicated always in the love of your spouse? Would you describe yourself that way? Are you you keeping the fires of love, and not just physical love, but deeper than that, friendship, partnership, uh, an intimacy on a deeper level than just physical intimacy? Is, Is that tight? Is it burning brightly? Are you intoxicated in one another? Paul would later follow in this same vein, encouraging those who struggled with self-control to go ahead and find a spouse. Uh, Paul said, if you're struggling with this, go find a spouse. Get married so that you can rejoice in your spouse. It's one of the reasons I agree with, with Dr. Al Mohler and others that we are not doing our children any favors when we expect them to wait a long time to marry. 
And we expect them to have these long engagements that last sometimes for, for years. Now, when we insist that our children wait till after college or even after graduate school to get married, what we're really often asking them to do is to burn with passion and struggle with this sin for a lot longer without the help of a spouse. Uh, how much better for them to be cultivating a happy home life, even if they don't have any money, <laughs> even if they have to, to scrape to get by during those years. There's no sin in being a poor married couple. There is sin in being sexually immoral. Number five. Number five. If you are married, don't deprive one another. Don't deprive one another. Spouses show love to each other and serve each other by giving themselves to one another for each other's benefit. So I'm simply going to read from 1 Corinthians 7, uh, beginning in verse 2. Paul says, But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. And the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. And likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Number six, number six, remember who you are and whose you are, who you are and whose you are. First Corinthians six, 19 and 20. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price to glorify God in your body. Uh, We must regularly remind ourselves that our bodies are not ultimately ours or our spouses. Ultimately, our bodies belong to God. And we have given ourselves completely to live for for His honor and His glory. Uh, Christ purchased us by His blood. Christ saved us from the judgment of God in hell. Now, as a redeemed people... Let us conduct ourselves in a way that adorns the name of our Savior. Paul says you're not your own and therefore glorify God with your body. Uh, One last point here on biblical strategies. Uh, Years ago, John Piper shared his own uh, personal strategy for fighting lust. And it has helped many Christians. Uh, What do you do? When you suddenly find yourself faced with that moment of a lustful temptation. Well, his strategy uses the word anthem as an acrostic. And so if you have an outline, it's there for you. The, the, the term anthem. Uh, the A is for avoid. Avoid as much as is possible and reasonable the sights and situations that arouse unfitting desire. This is similar to the very first strategy we talked about with David. Don't be in the wrong place. If you know that there are certain places where you go that cause you to fall into this temptation, or there are certain situations that you put yourself in that make this harder for you, avoid them. The N stands for no. 
say no to every lustful thought within five seconds. Within five seconds, when, the, when that first lustful thought comes into your mind, squelch it there at the beginning. Say a forceful no to yourself, to that temptation, right when it comes. T is for turn. Turn your mind forcefully towards Christ as a superior satisfaction. Turn your mind away from whatever that temptation is, and in that moment, go straight to Christ in your mind, who He is, what He's done for you. Go to the cross, picture Him there, picture Him giving His life for you. Let that picture, let that thought overwhelm and and, and seize your heart away from that temptation. The H is for hold. Hold the promise and the pleasure of Christ firmly in your mind until it pushes the other images out. So the idea is the temptation's there. You say no to that temptation. You turn to thoughts of Christ. And then you hold those thoughts of Christ there until the temptation is gone. You, you don't let the thoughts of the gospel and who you are in Jesus and the forgiveness of your sins, you don't let those things go until you're beginning to feel the temptation wane. E is for enjoy. Enjoy a superior satisfaction. Enjoy thinking about Christ and His love for you or some other aspect of His character, some other aspect of His work. Hold thoughts of Christ there and, then, and enjoy them. And it's as you enjoy who you are in Christ that that temptation will begin to wane. Right? Um, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. And then the M is for move. Move into a useful activity and away from idleness and other vulnerable behaviors. Once you've got your mind enjoying Christ, you're beginning to feel that temptation wane, then now make sure you get out of that situation. Move to something where you're going to be occupied, something where you're going to be busy. Uh, Idleness is dangerous. Idleness is dangerous. So I hope some of those strategies will prove helpful to you. As you battle for purity, for Christ's sake. So finally tonight we come to our fifth question. What are some special issues related to the seventh commandment? What are some special issues related to the seventh commandment? There are a number that we can mention. So I'm just going to hit on two of them uh, tonight. Number one, there is the issue of determining when people are truly married. Now that may seem silly to you, but as a pastor, I've seen people fall into all kinds of false ideas. And in talking with other pastors, it turned out that this is a common thing, where when people are feeling the tug of sexual temptation, they will often begin to justify Um, sins by playing around with whether or not people are actually truly really married for example if a couple lives together long enough should we consider them married if my girlfriend and I have already been intimate aren't we really technically already married in God's eyes uh, if we're engaged to be married, isn't that, isn't that close enough? Isn't that practically the same? This person is technically still married on paper. 
but he or she has been separated from their spouse for years. Are they really still married? So these are the kinds of questions that people have to wrestle with. And they matter because people will play games with these things in order to find a way around God's commandment. That rather than having a heart that loves purity, rejoices in purity, people will look for every possible way to excuse sin. And so let me address this issue as, as best as I can. Um, first, when is a person married? As I understand it, marriage is an institution given to all humanity everywhere in the world. And everywhere in the world, societies find ways to distinguish who is married and who is not. That's really the key question. How do we distinguish who is married and who is not? In our society, like many others, this is handled by the governing authorities through a marriage license. Romans 13 commands us to submit to our governing authorities. And therefore, if you are to be recognized as married in the United States, you are to have a marriage license. Uh, People who live together for many years without being married are long-term fornicators, but they're not married. Uh, Even laws about common law marriage that extend marriage benefits to, to unmarried people still recognize that those couples are not actually married. Uh, some people think that they can have a, a private wedding ceremony, exchange vows, and then let's just leave the government out of it. But Romans 13 requires us to submit to our civil laws. And frankly, every society has to have a clear way of defining who is single and therefore available for marriage. And who actually belongs as a spouse to someone else. Our nation's way is not perfect, but it works decently. Um, Yes, when our nation starts handing out marriage licenses to two men or to two women, they're going astray. That is not right. Uh, In that case, the government is no longer acting under God's authority. That's acting against God's authority. But it does appear that having a marriage license is the orderly way under our civil authorities that we discern who is married and who is not. Now, I do believe that Christians especially should place a high regard on exchanging vows in marriage. Um, Why? Because the Bible is clear that marriage is a covenant. It's a promise. In Genesis 2, when Adam and Eve came together as husband and wife, we we don't see them explicitly exchange vows, but we do see a a true receiving of each other to have and to hold for life. And we're even told that because of what happened with them, a man shall leave his father and mother and, and cleave, hold fast to his wife. And it's interesting because that word cleave is used elsewhere in the Bible, twice in Deuteronomy, to talk about Israel's covenant relationship with God. It's a covenantal word. In Malachi 2.14, we have a clear statement teaching us that marriage is a covenantal institution. An institution that rests on solemn promises. Uh, Malachi 2.14 says, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithful, unfaithful, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Your wife by covenant. 
A covenant is a solemn contract, an exchange of promises, just as Christ has made solemn promises to us as his people. Our relationship to Jesus is built on trusting his promises, and marriage also is to be built on promise-making and promise-keeping. And so in sum, until you've made covenant vows before God, and have been licensed as, mar- as a married couple in the eyes of our society, you should not consider yourself married. Now, I, you know, you don't have to wait to receive your copy of the marriage license in the mail. As soon as the pastor has signed it and the two witnesses are there, it's, it's official. But I would say both the vows and the marriage license need to be in place. So if a couple lives together long enough, should we consider them married? Biblically, I think the answer is no. Living together for any duration doesn't make two people married. Uh, If my girlfriend and I have already been intimate, aren't we really already married in God's eyes? The answer is no. Sexual intimacy does not make two people married. Uh, If we're engaged to be married, isn't that practically the same? No. Because the vows haven't been made and because our civil authorities have not yet recognized you as married. Uh, If a person is technically still married on paper, that is the marriage license is still in place, but they've been separated uh, from each other for many years, are they still married? The answer is yes. They are still married. A, A true divorce must be on biblical grounds and it must be recognized by the proper authorities. Now, I know that raises all kinds of questions. So if you all want to talk about that further on Wednesday nights, we, we will. But I think it's important that we be clear on these issues. Second issue that we'll talk about tonight related to this commandment. Uh, it's one that you know, most Christians wouldn't have thought to talk about 50 years ago. But now, uh, every modern book on the Ten Commandments, and when it gets to the Seventh Commandment, this is the issue to talk about because of our day. And it's the issue of homosexuality. Um, if we are to honor marriage and therefore to abstain from all sexual activity outside of marriage, what is a homosexual supposed to do? A gay person. How, how are we to think about that situation? I am convinced that those who struggle with homosexuality can honor marriage, though not through supposed gay marriage, but by being honest about homosexuality as a perversion of God's design. And so to help us with this, let me try and answer two specific questions. Uh, First, the question that often comes up is, are homosexuals born that way? Are they born that way? Uh, Is homosexuality the result of nature? They're born that way. Or nurture, life circumstances and their own decisions Cause them to go that direction. Uh, Is homosexuality the result of something in one's genetic makeup that he or she has no control over? Or could it be the result of environmental factors, the the kind of family one grew up in, for example? This is a fairly difficult issue, and the Bible only goes so far in giving us help. But there is one thing I think we can say for sure. I think we can say for sure that before the fall, homosexuality was not natural. 
before the fall, a tendency towards homosexuality is not something that would have occurred in one's genetic makeup. Uh, remember, in Romans 1, verse 26, uh, Paul says that homosexuality is contrary to nature. That it is, it, it is contrary to God's design for the natural world. So when, when God looked at His creation and declared it all to be very good, there was no homosexuality as a part of that original creation. That said, we do know that because of sin... This world is under a curse, and therefore things do go wrong. And so I don't just immediately assume that there can be no genetic tendency towards homosexuality. Uh, Years ago, I remember reading a a Time magazine article in which the author was arguing that uh, science now points to the prospect that we are all born with different genetic propensities. That is, we're all born with certain attitudes and certain behaviors that we tend to more than others. Yet the author also argued that it is the decisions we make and the people we are around and the environment in which we live that serves as a trigger for many of these propensities. That is, two people may be prone to the same thing genetically, But only one gets triggered by their environmental factors to actually go in that direction. Now that's a very mechanical way of speaking about these things. But it would not surprise me if there's an element of truth to that. After all, we do know that there are many other sins that we are prone to by nature. Uh, As children, we, we were born with a selfish personality. Most of us are born naturally impatient. Uh, We don't have to teach our children how to lie. It comes natural to them. So if part of the curse included that some people have a greater inherent tendency towards homosexual sins than others, I don't think we should be stunned by that. But I certainly don't think being born that way is, is the whole picture. Uh, Some people may be born with a greater tendency towards homosexuality, but that's not the whole story. Uh, Many psychologists, and and I always have to say we have to be careful when we give too much credence to modern psychology, but many psychologists hold that homosexuality is largely a result of a person's environment during childhood. So, for example, uh, studies have shown that gay men more than heterosexual men, report that their fathers were cold and detached in childhood. Um, James Dobson says the the same thing. He argues from his research that boys who grow up uh, to be homosexuals tend to be those who stuck more to their mothers in childhood, uh, became somewhat effeminate in nature, uh, or most commonly they were simply non-masculine in nature. They became very passive, uh, a quality that's not supposed to mark true masculinity, and that a lot of it was due to the absence of the father or um, uh, a non-biblical relationship with the father. So my own humble suspicion is that homosexuality is a result of both nature and nurture, both, both the curse at work in our genetic makeup as well as the curse at work in our society. But either way, homosexuality is certainly part of the curse, and it is sin. 
Uh, Just because something seems to come natural to someone does not make it right. Frankly, heterosexual sin seems to come natural to most of us. That doesn't make that right either. Even if scientists could somehow prove tomorrow that homosexuals have no choice but to feel the feelings they have, it would not legitimize their sin. It would simply point us to how desperately messed up the human race is and how badly every one of us need the grace of Christ to fix us. Homosexuals are not the only ones who claim that they can't help how they feel and therefore they should be free to act on their feelings. Child abusers have made the same, the same claims. I can't help how I feel. I'm just acting on what comes natural to me. Uh, many serial adulterers have made the same claims as well. God just made me not to be able to be monogamous. God just made me in such a way that, that you know, I, I need to, to sleep around. That's just who I am. Um, we need to be clear that being born that way can never be used as an excuse for people's actions. I remember several years ago, uh, I think it was back when we were living in Pascagoula, um, there was a fellow who would call us up at the church anonymously. He would never tell us his name, but he would openly just weep over the phone as he described his struggles with homosexuality. Uh, He would talk about how badly he wanted to be different, about how he felt powerless to change. Um, We need to be careful that we never treat homosexuals as though they are worse sinners than others. All of us have sins that come natural to us. And all of us are in desperate need of the grace of Christ. We must walk carefully the line of being sure to love those involved in this sin. Even as we speak firmly and clearly against the sin. Uh, We must learn to practice compassionate truth telling. Speaking the truth in love. Uh, That is what we need as we respond to the rise of homosexuality in our culture. To learn the art of speaking the truth, but speaking it in love. And then the second question I'll I'll answer on this issue. Can a homosexual be a Christian? Can a homosexual be a Christian? Is there such a thing as a gay Christian? Well, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. And let me say three things from, from this passage. 1 Corinthians 6, let's read it first. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Uh, Three points that I see in those verses. First note that homosexuals who embrace rather than repent of their homosexuality, will not go to heaven. The Bible is clear that those who continue in their sin without repentance, without seeking to put it away, without fighting it, 
will not be saved. The verse is clear. Men who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. Of course, neither will adulterers. Neither will the sexually immoral. Neither will swindlers. Neither will revilers. So let's not single one group out. But we see here clearly that those who practice homosexuality will not inherit the kingdom of God. The message of Christ was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. There is no salvation apart from seeking to turn away from your sins to embrace Christ and His ways. And Jesus has made it abundantly clear in the Scriptures that homosexuality is a sin. It's hard to see how anyone can be a serious follower of Christ while at the same time embracing a homosexual lifestyle. Number two. Do not take this to mean that everyone who struggles with homosexual tendencies is a non-Christian. I think again of that fellow who used to call the church and talk to us about his struggle. That man may very well have been a Christian. He was actively seeking to turn away from homosexuality. He was was striving to repent. It was hard for him. And he had relapses into, into homosexual behavior. And and I don't know that man's heart. Only God knows that man's heart. God knows whether he was truly repentant or not. But if he was, uh, and he was looking to Christ for help, and he was seeking to follow Jesus, then even as he struggled, there's good reason to believe that he was a true child of God. Think about Christians who struggle with tendencies towards alcohol. uh, Or Christians who struggle with, with tendencies towards greed. Thankfully, whatever our struggle may be, if we're serious about repenting, if we're weeping over our sins, if we're truly seeking to follow Christ, we have good reason to believe that we are His. And the struggle will one day end when Christ glorifies us and brings us into heaven. And then the last thing I want us to see from this passage is that homosexuals can be saved from their homosexuality. Because apparently some of the Corinthian Christians were homosexuals before they were saved. And yet Paul uses the past tense. And he says, such were some of you. In other words, you used to be, some of you in the church at Corinth, men who practice homosexuality. Such were you, but you are not that way now. That does not describe you any longer. In our culture today, you will get mocked. You will get laughed out of the room for suggesting that homosexuality can be cured. You you will show how foolish you are if you say that homosexuals can actually cease to be homosexuals. But homosexuality is not so much a disease to be cured as it is a sin to be defeated. And it can be defeated. Uh, Love for Christ can become more dominant in a person's heart and hold sway over that person's thoughts, attitudes, and actions in such a way that homosexuality is defeated in that person's life, just as it is with any other sins that we may struggle with. Uh, For some Christians who struggled with homosexuality, they are able to enter into a true heterosexual marriage and honor God as a spouse and as a parent. 
Uh, this is why I was so glad we were able to have Rosaria Butterfield come last year and, and tell her story as, as she came to Christ. It was a process, but, but God helped defeat a lot of that temptation in her life so that she's been able to be a wife and a mother and a, and a spokesperson of the power of the gospel to change someone. For others, however, honoring marriage means that for them, they just themselves will never be married. There are many Christians who struggle with homosexuality who have chosen to follow the example of Jesus and of Paul in pursuing a life of holy singleness. Either path truly honors marriage, uh, whereas gay marriage does not honor marriage. It twists it and distorts it. Now, I don't know what sin you may be struggling with tonight, uh, but the reality of 1 Corinthians 6 holds true for you. Your sin can be defeated as you live in the love of Christ. We are to rest in Jesus and devote ourselves to His purposes. Cultivate love for Christ in your heart. Cultivate a commitment to His purposes in your life. Set your mind on things above. And with prayer, much, much prayer, follow Christ. And He will give you real victories over sin in this life. And then, of course, there is the great victory to come. There is that day when all sin will be removed from us. If we're Christians, sin's penalty has already been absorbed by Christ on the cross for us. But there is also coming a day when sin's presence will be taken out of our lives. Its power has already been broken, but its presence will one day be forever removed. And so we ought to pray for that day. We ought to long for that day. We ought to look forward to that day. And in the joy of that coming day, we rest in Christ and we keep on fighting that we might present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.